Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Phil Grandia is a clinical psychologist at the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Center. Following his first career as an infantry officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, Phil underwent his PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Ottawa. He completed his residency and supervised practice at the Royal and subsequently joined the hospital as staff. In addition to his clinical work, Phil is actively engaged in program evaluation initiatives and psychology training. He currently works on the Royal's three dual diagnosis teams in the community mental health program. All right, Dr. Philip Grandio, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? Not too bad, Pete. Thanks so much for for having me. Uh, How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Fall is uh, setting in. It's getting colder and colder, but uh, that also means that the Christmas season is just around the corner as well, so that's nice. Loving both, loving both, so... Excellent. Well, Phil, listen, thanks so much for joining me today to speak about some of the most vulnerable members of our society, namely those affected by intellectual disability and in some cases have the added challenge of living with a mental illness. I guess I want to say up front, like admittedly, this is not a clinical presentation that I know very much about beyond my very basic exposure while working in a hospital setting. So I'm I'm really looking forward to getting up to speed and understanding some of the unique challenges faced by this population, as well as the opportunities to help these folks improve functioning, reduce symptom severity, and have a, a better quality of life. As well, Phil, and I, and I know this is really important to you, I, I really hope that we can explore some of the barriers to access to treatment for these clients, as well as your thoughts on how capacity in the community could, could perhaps be increased, and in particular, how perceptions of clinicians of this population might be impeding that very process. So again, thanks for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity there, Pete, and, and just to advocate for this client population. And uh, yeah, I really hope to show people how, how wonderful this client population is and, and how rewarding the work is. Excellent. Well, that's a great uh, jumping off point. I guess what I wanted to do first was I like to get all kind of the terms and conditions on the table, you know, so that both I and the listener can have a good sense of where we're going to go today. Phil, would you mind providing perhaps just an overview of what intellectual disability is, uh, just so we can familiarize ourselves with that just a little bit? Yeah, happy to do that, Pete. Um, there, it, it's worth clarification because there's often some some misconceptions about what intellectual disability is. And so, first of all, I'll, I'll say and, and I will do today um, is always refer to them as individuals or persons with an intellectual disability. And I think that's really key. We don't want to, to define somebody based on a disability. So not an intellectually disabled person, but a person with an intellectual disability. And so I'll use that language throughout today. Um, And also we we stay away from language like mental retardation. It's an old term. We don't use that anymore, of course. And so um, intellectual disability is the proper term. And really what we're looking at there is we're looking at three different things when we talk about intellectual disability. We're looking at intellectual functioning impairment or cognitive functioning impairment. Adaptive functioning impairment is the second one, or the independent functioning impairment. And then as well as those are present during the developmental period, those three pieces together um, are the the diagnostic criteria for somebody with an intellectual disability, describe somebody who has an intellectual disability. And that that intellectual and adaptive functioning impairments are really at or below the first percentile. So Phil, is intellectual disability a diagnosis in itself or is it a descriptor that would apply to what might come with certain 
uh, challenges, say from a, a genetic abnormality or, or something to that effect? Great question. So uh, certainly uh, there are, are different um, etiologies of intellectual disability. And so some folks will be quite familiar with something like Down syndrome um, or fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, and so these are, are conditions that sometimes can lead to intellectual disability. They in and of themselves are not synonymous with intellectual disability. So for example, uh, individuals with Down syndrome, there are individuals with Down syndrome who do not have intellectual disability. And so um, genetic conditions, uh, other etiologies, um, exposure to uh, toxins in your road, those kinds of things can potentially um, cause intellectual disability. Um, and so, uh, in, in terms of other diagnoses that people might um, associate with intellectual disability, the, the biggest one there is autism spectrum disorder. Some people will see those as being the same thing. They are, they are certainly not. So autism and intellectual disability are two different things. They're both developmental disabilities, but developmental disabilities are more broad category of, of conditions that are um, present during the developmental period. And is there some way of quantifying the relative prevalence rate of intellectual disability in the population? How, how widespread of a challenge is this? Right. So again, if we're considering that uh, intellectual disability by definition is uh, those individuals who have intellectual adaptive functioning at or below the first percentile, uh, then we're talking about it being about one or 2% really uh, of the, the general population that has an intellectual disability. Um, in Canada, and it varies based on, on country and region in the world, but in Canada, the, the prevalence rate of intellectual disability is 1.6%. And so in a city like Ottawa, 16,000 people have an intellectual disability. For someone who has an intellectual disability who is at maybe the higher end of the functioning scale, or what would day-to-day -day functioning look for a, a client like that? Mm -hmm. So for those who, who may not be familiar, um, intellectual disability has four different categories. So uh, mild, moderate, severe, and profound levels of impairment. Um, and interestingly, uh, the DSM-5 will actually, uh, this, the 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 criteria that drives the overall level of intellectual disability is adaptive functioning impairment. Those of you who are familiar with the DSM-4 is actually intellectual functioning impairment that, that uh, quantified the degree of impairment, but now it's adaptive functioning. And really the rationale there is adaptive functioning is the best indication of how much support you actually need. Do you need a mild, moderate, severe, profound level impairment, or do you have a level impairment if that's the amount of support that you need? 80% um, of individuals with an intellectual disability have a mild intellectual disability. 15% have a moderate intellectual disability. And then the remaining are folks with a severe profound intellectual disability. Um, but folks with a, a mild intellectual disability, who we'll be focusing on more today, or I'll be focusing most of my comments on around intellectual disability today, are folks who um, might surprise some individuals in terms of their level of functioning. So I know of many individuals with mild intellectual disability who have, who have, have jobs, who have families, who are married, um, who, uh, who are, participate in their communities, not only in terms of things like day programming, but are actually advocates for persons with disabilities. And so 
folks with a mild intellectual disability can really be quite functional um, and um, have a lot of really great skills. So, and one thing I would add to that is, is in terms of the, the living situations of a lot of folks uh, or individuals with an intellectual disability. And so with individuals who have a, mo- a mild level of intellectual disability, um, many of them, certainly those of the, the highest level kind of uh, in, in that range, are living independently um, with supports potentially, but some of them can live all nearly fully independently. So Phil, every once in a while, we'll get a referral come through where we're not really sure what's going on in the sense it's not mapping to what we would see on a day-to-day basis. We have a suspicion that perhaps there's something deeper going on, perhaps something related to an intellectual disability or, or, or otherwise. What does the assessment process look like in terms of arriving at some conclusion around the contribution of an intellectual disability to the person's clinical picture or functioning or or whatever metric we want to use there? Standardized psychometric testing is essential in terms of first being able to determine if somebody has an intellectual disability. Um, One thing that I always uh, tell the individuals that I work with and and, uh, my students and residents is that clinical impression is really poor. And so we need to have the data to confirm our suspicions if there are suspicions that somebody has an intellectual disability. And so we would use, of course, the WACE, um, the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale, um, as, as one of the gold standard measures of intelligence. But then we'd also consider measures like uh, adaptive functioning measures, such as the, the ABAS-3, the Adaptive Behavior Assessment System, which is an informant-based adaptive functioning measure. Um, and as well as collecting a really detailed history um, from um, collaterals or from the individual themselves to better understand the cause of their current impairment. Um, It's interesting to note that when a diagnosis of intellectual disability is made in adulthood, it's actually what we call a retroactive diagnosis because it should be made in childhood. And there are so many factors that can lead somebody to have cognitive impairment or adaptive functioning impairment, that could be mental health or physical or lots of other factors to consider. So it's important to differentiate the impairment, where they're coming from, and is it truly from a developmental um, disability that this impairment is is coming from? And then that will help better understand uh, whether or not they have a a true intellectual disability versus brain injury versus um, other conditions that might cause impairment. So, Phil, we're in Ottawa. What's the capacity like for this type of assessment uh, within our community? And did you have a sense of the capacity for this assessment just maybe more broadly within uh, maybe Ontario or Canadian society in general? So certainly cognitive assessments and adaptive functioning assessments are within the wheelhouse of many uh, mental health care professionals, psychologists most notably. And um, it is certainly a barrier uh, in, in terms of um, getting access to those types of assessments. Uh, they're, they're very expensive if done in private practice. There's you know, only certain types of insurance packages that might cover an assessment of that nature. Um, there are services like ours at, at the Royal um, where we will do eligibility assessments um, on, on referral through a family physician that would include obviously a psychological assessment to determine eligibility for our services. As you're speaking, Phil, I have a number of kind of almost like process related questions come up that I want to ask you. If you're dealing with an adult, uh, you know, certainly the communication of a diagnosis is at times a, a delicate issue. It's one that you do with care, understanding the, the, the weight of perhaps the information that's being given or the potential consequences or this out of the other thing. How do you approach the communication of, of this diagnosis 
Uh, and is the family involved in that discussion? How does this typically play out? Again, especially with an adult. Certainly raise a, a number of important issues there, Pete. Um, one of which is who does the individual have supporting them? And so uh, that calls into question, and, and certainly we can jump into this discussion at a later point around who is the decision maker in the context of the person with an intellectual disability. Um, and it is the assumption, unless there is a formalized substitute decision maker or a uh, power of attorney, that the individual themselves is their own decision maker. And so um, I'm always making a point, re really regardless of whether or not the individual is identified as their own decision maker, to provide the feedback to them directly using the language that I will have in my reports and be communicating to other professionals. So mild intellectual disability, I will use that language. But you're right, this has to be approached with sensitivity. It is a heavy diagnosis for somebody to, to have. Sometimes there's already a suspicion that that's something that's been going on in this person's life. Uh, maybe they've heard language around this before. Other times it comes out of the blue for somebody to hear that they have what's considered a mild intellectual disability. Um, or any other level for that matter. So what I try to do is in a compassionate way, provide the diagnosis in a way that helps the individual understand that the diagnosis, diagnosis is not who they are, but it helps clinicians communicate about what their needs are. And so even though I communicate that diagnosis very directly to the individual, doing a lot of priming ahead of time to identify that there are areas where the person needs support, Communicating the diagnosis and immediately following up, but that's not who you are. What that means is that you are somebody who needs more support than most people your age, which is essentially what the crux of it is for the individual. If somebody has more of a mild intellectual disability, it's worth helping point out to them as well that, yes, you need more help than most people your age. But there are a lot of skills that you have, and there are other people who need more help than you. It's helpful for them to know that there are things that they're doing and they're not the ones who are in most need of help. Um, I have an example of using Tim Hortons cups and doing extra small to the extra large. And there's actually five categories. And I'll say that everybody is at least an extra small. Having that normalization piece is critical to say, and I will say it many times with my clients, I need help every single day. So it's okay to ask for help. Everybody asks for help. You need a little bit more help than most people your age. And, and that's that's no problem. That's not a big deal. Um, it's important to ask for help when you need it. It's also important to keep learning to do things and to grow your independence. Yeah, I really like that, Phil. It's a very normalizing and validating way of framing that. Are there typically any implications for this diagnosis that clinicians would need to be aware of? Or is it is it necessary to open certain envelopes of funding within sort of a public healthcare system, things like that? Absolutely. So it is, I mentioned it's a heavy diagnosis. It is because it carries a lot of weight. Um, it carries, it opens some doors, but it also closes doors, unfortunately. And so the doors that it opens um, are around uh, funding, as you say, related to uh, Development of Services Ontario and March of Dimes specifically funding. We call that passport funding. There's a whole chain there essentially having an assessment done through Developmental Services Ontario, and then they approve or they identify, you know, the level of need, the level of resources required, and then that's approved 
by March of Dimes and then passport funding, which is used for things like engagement and meaningful activity, day programs, passport workers, individual one-on-ones, those kinds of activities. It can also help um, identify if there is a residential support needs. Um, and so being able to help put the person potentially on a, a list for developmental sector housing. Now, both of those things are not without their challenges and without their wait lists. And so that's, I think that's worth noting that if somebody is eligible, there's still quite a bit of, of waiting and, and work to be done to actually open up those resources. The, the reason why I think it's so important to be careful about making a diagnosis of intellectual disability and really determining whether or not it's truly an intellectual disability and one of the main reasons why I'm here today is because it closes a lot of doors, unfortunately, having a diagnosis of intellectual disability. So many of our folks would benefit from having psychotherapy services, for example, but unfortunately, a lot of doors are closed on them because people feel that they may not have the skills necessary to be able to offer services to persons with intellectual disability. And so um, it is a, a harsh word to use, um, but it does feel at moments like individuals with an intellectual disability can be discriminated against in our mental health care system. And Phil, just while we're on that topic, how would a clinician reasonably evaluate whether they were competent to be able to serve someone in this population? Uh, And I know we're going to talk about psychotherapy for people affected by intellectual disability later on, but uh, just while we're here on this moment, how, how would you speak to that or how would you think about that? So, I think it's important to note that it's not an area of practice to jump into and and feel that you can just do it without having a little bit of work done in the background or other uh, kind of consultation or supervision, perhaps, um, in terms from from a colleague around how to approach care with these clients. Certainly, it's different enough from other areas of adult practice that... Uh, it it warrants some consultation and some touching base with somebody who has experience in the field. Um, But to your point, no, there is no difference um, in terms of competency based on the college standards. It is adult competency that I have and I hold, Um, but it's certainly a scope of practice issue and um, an area of practice rather uh, that that certainly um, it it needs to be um, considered. And Phil, just before we move on from the diagnostic piece, Uh, I think you had alluded to a couple of differentials, one of them being traumatic brain injury. I remember you saying that. What are some other important differentials that come up when trying to determine uh, this diagnosis? What is the clinician typically sifting through or weighing in terms of confounding kinds of variables? I'd say one of the more challenging aspects of my job, Pete, is uh, determining who is eligible for our services over at the world and who is not. And it's it's something that we would like to help everybody, obviously, but we, we serve individuals with an intellectual disability. One of the things that I see happen most often is, um, um, is individuals who are identified as having an intellectual disability based on a psychological assessment, when in fact they have something more along the lines of a learning disability where there are significant splits in scores in terms of most notably, notably between verbal comprehension and reasoning and nonverbal reasoning. And if there's a significant difference there, um, or if there's conditions like ADHD that might actually impact their ability to engage in, in the ways and create a profile that looks like somebody with an intellectual disability, when in fact it does not. So really if there's, there's, there's splits, there's scatters in intellectual functioning profiles, I think that's something uh, that would really call into question diagnoses of potential learning disability or ADHD or effort, just broadly speaking, or other mental health challenges. 
So I think those are two conditions in particular, and I know we're talking big, big picture in terms of ADHD and learning disability, but those are two differentials that are certainly important to consider. Uh, there are certain mental health conditions as well, Pete, that have a significant impact on cognitive functioning. And another uh, situation that we often, or I have to find myself in, is reviewing eligibility for individuals who have schizophrenia spectrum disorders. And we know that there, there is unfortunately uh, a, an impact on cognitive functioning in the context of that illness. And so having to factor that in and, and considering uh, the developmental uh, contributions of their impairment in that context is really, really important. So, well, thanks for that, Phil. That's really, really helpful. I want to bring us now into the mental illness part of the discussion. And first of all, I just want to clarify a term very quickly. I know dual diagnosis is a term that is out there. I believe it's used differently in the United States than, than it is in Canada. Is that a term that we still use in Canada in a way that's germane to the conversation today? That is someone who has both an intellectual disability as well as a mental health diagnosis? Yes. So dual diagnosis in Canada typically refers to individuals with an intellectual disability and mental illness. In the States, of course, it refers to individuals who are experiencing substance use uh, challenges as well as mental illness. In Canada, my understanding is we use the substance use and concurrent disorders, concurrent disorders being more of um, the synonymous of dual diagnosis in the States. But yes, dual diagnosis is the proper term here for intellectual disability and mental illness. So in this population, what is the rate of comorbidity? Uh, if it's higher, do we know why? Uh, what are some of the factors that might contribute to that if it's a thing? Really, what the literature shows is that individuals with an intellectual disability are as likely or as prone to developing mental illness as the typically intelligent population. And that's the term that we use. We'll say typically intelligent or typically developing population. Uh, so, you know, estimates range, of course, as they often do in this kind of literature, but 20 to 40% of individuals with an intellectual disability have a current mental illness diagnosis. What's important to note here is that in addition to that 20 to 40% of individuals uh, who have a, who with an intellectual disability who have a, a diagnosis of a mental illness, uh, an additional 10 to 20% of individuals have what's termed challenging behavior. And from my perspective, challenging behavior doesn't come out of anywhere. If I have challenging behavior in my life, and we all have challenging behavior from time to time, it's because there's an underlying mental health health concern, perhaps like stress. That's not a mental illness, but it's a, it's it's a mental health concern. So, for individuals with an intellectual disability who are experiencing challenging behavior, it is my opinion that there is an underlying mental health challenge or potential mental illness that's been missed. So again, ranges 20 to 40%, additional 10 to 20%, but a good chunk of individuals with intellectual disability will, will have or will develop a mental illness in their lifetime. Phil, in your experience, are there certain diagnoses that tend to show up more than others? So certainly at peak, uh, depression and anxiety are, are top of the charts, and, 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 and that's the way we would see it in the typically developing population as well. One disorder that I think that comes up more frequently, uh, there, there are a couple. So, for, so schizophrenia spectrum disorders are more likely to occur in, in the context of intellectual disability. Um, one other disorder that does come up more frequently, and that might be seen by uh, mental health care professionals in the community, is adjustment disorders. So adjustment disorders are, more, disorders are more prevalent in individuals with an intellectual disability because the threshold of a stressor that would trigger an adjustment response is so much lower than it would be for individuals who are typically developing. 
And this comes back to a point that I'm hoping to flesh out a little bit more here is we talked a little bit about intellectual functioning impairment. We talked about adaptive functioning impairment as being two key criteria um, related to intellectual disability. But we often neglect to speak about psychological functioning. And in my opinion, if we have a little Venn diagram, there's an overlap here between intellectual functioning, adaptive functioning, and psychological functioning. And what I'm referring to there are things like emotional awareness, just being aware of the experiences that we're having and being able to identify those emotions, the ability to regulate those emotions, perspective taking, being able to see beyond the immediate moment and to, to look at the bigger picture, theory of mind, which is a tremendous you know, psychological resource that we have and we rely on to be able, and certainly in our interactions with others, being able to identify what somebody else is thinking or anticipate what somebody else is thinking and then changing our own behavior accordingly. These are all aspects of psychological functioning that individuals in, in, with an intellectual disability are at a deficit for. And so it is very difficult then when in the face of stressors to be able to use those resources um, in a way to actually compensate for those stressors. And so mental health challenges become more prevalent. Adjustment disorders is an example of that, where uh, the, the reaction to stressors and to change and to uh, negative experiences in life is going to be more significant. And so more likely it is to see things like an adjustment disorder. If not dealt with, will lead more into something like a, a major depression or anxiety disorder. No, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. Phil, in prepping for this conversation, I was well, I was thinking about something along those lines where given that there may not be the same capacity to identify threats in the environment or to have theory of mind of what someone may be up to or things like that, is there a higher rate of trauma within this population? Absolutely. Uh, some sobering statistics are that 80% of women with an intellectual disability have been sexually abused or, or, or sexually assaulted. And up to 40% of men with an intellectual disability have been sexually abused or sexually assaulted. Uh, those are just staggering numbers. Um, so yes, individuals with an intellectual disability are, are more prone to situations that potentially will, will bring about traumas and um, put themselves at risk of exploitation. No, I think, Phil, that's such an important point to make. And as disheartening as it is, there's no point not being aware of it. Uh, you know, if it's happening anyhow, best to integrate that into the conceptualization than be able to meet the needs of meet the needs of what's actually going on. Phil, just another question for you. Is there any particular fashion or variation with respect to how depression or anxiety or any other disorder might present in this particular population? Is, are there certain themes or... You know, we know there's many, many ways that one can be depressed or anxious, right? Are there particular flavors that tend to sort of uh, come through with this particular population? Yes, absolutely. And so there's a couple of things that I'd, I'd mention there, first of all, is uh, generally speaking, for somebody with a mild intellectual disability, mental disorders, mental illness will present very, very similar to those of, of typically intelligent individuals. One of the factors that's really important to consider in diagnosis is that the DSM-5, like every other diagnostic um, classification system, relies heavily on the individual being able to, to have insight, to interpret their experiences, be able to communicate those verbally to a clinician. In many cases, individuals with an intellectual disability, even individuals with a mild intellectual disability, uh, 
are have deficits in in areas of verbal communication or have difficulties understanding their own experience so will not be able to communicate those experiences as well that's where we rely on collaterals it's where we rely on behavioral observations and and things like that in the context of something like depression for example um, we'd be looking at in addition to something like low mood, sad mood, um, depressed mood, we would be looking at things like anger and irritability and agitation as, as, as considerations of, of mood dysfunction as well. So, so these are important characteristics. For those who, who diagnose um, and, and they're interested in, in, in having a good resource for this, uh, there is a Diagnostic Manual for Intellectual Disability, DMID-2. There's a second edition that's based on the DSM-5 criteria. And essentially this, this manual, really great manual, really great tool, actually breaks down the diagnostic criteria for each mental disorder and then actually notes the, the modifications, adaptations to each of the criteria based on the level of intellectual disability. And so as you can imagine, as we move towards more severe presentations of intellectual disability, moderate, severe, profound, the, there needs to be an adjustment to criteria based on the individual's ability to actually communicate their experience. Something else that I mentioned here as well, Pete, is, is diagnostic overshadowing. And this is something that happens all too frequently, but is, is understandable to some degree why this happens based on the exposure that many clinicians have to this client population or the lack, lack of exposure to clients um, with an intellectual disability. And what diagnostic overshadowing is, is attributing symptoms that otherwise won't be identified as, as being symptoms of mental illness or physical illness to their intellectual disability. And so saying, okay, those symptoms, that's explained by intellectual disability without considering that it may be a physical illness or a mental illness. And so we often encourage our community partners or our other clinicians in, in the community um, to guard against diagnostic overshadowing by using a tool like the DMID, the Diagnostic Manifold of Intellectual Disability, and considering to take at face value what those symptoms are and, and not simply attributing to intellectual disability. So Phil, you mentioned using that tool to get a little bit higher resolution. Are there any other ways that we can avoid that diagnostic overshadowing that you were talking about? So one key, key way to do that is to include as many other professionals from disciplines that you can in the client's care. So having somebody with an interprofessional team, that's what we use at the Royal, but certainly I understand that's more difficult to do in the community, but really having more communication between say a family physician or a family practitioner um, and your, yourself as a psychotherapist involving social work, um, better understanding what are all the contributing factors that are leading to certain individuals' presentation. Again, if somebody comes to a, a, a healthcare professional, mental health care professional with, with challenging behavior listed as the, the problem or the diagnosis, it's not a diagnosis, um, considering the whole biopsychosocial model is really, really important. What are the different factors? Key point here, 50% of challenging behavior in individuals with an intellectual disability is due to an underlying Oh, um, medical condition that's been undiagnosed or untreated or poorly treated. So this is huge. And this is actually from an Ontario study. So, so important to go in and make sure that those things are taken care of first um, and to not just make the assumption that a challenge or a symptom that somebody is experiencing is due to, uh, to intellectual disability. 
Phil, that's actually a great segue into the next question I had for you is, I know it's not within the scope of practice for us as psychologists, but what role does medication typically play in treating this population? Is this sort of the norm or is it more tailored to the client? How does that typically unfold in your experience? Of course, in speaking about medication, I would rely on my relationships with my psychiatry uh, colleagues over at the Royal and their expertise in, the, in this field. One thing that I have learned from talking with them over time is uh, that individuals with an intellectual disability, their brains are more sensitive to psychotropic medication. And so, and medications intended for, to address mental health concerns. And so it, it is not the same types of approaches in terms of prescribing medication uh, as, as would be for the typically developing population. And so that's a significant consideration. Um, polypharmacy is a, is a growing problem and in, in this client population and for individuals uh, with an intellectual disability and mental illness. And something that many clinicians, many psychiatrists um, in particular are working to reduce. So we know that polypharmacy having multiple medications, multiple psychotropic medications is actually not in the best interest of clients in many cases. Um, it's really important to better identify exactly what the individual's challenges are and then uh, provide more targeted psychopharmacological interventions. I'll give just an example in terms of um, some of the medications that are prescribed. They can have a cognitive dulling effect. I'll give a quick example in terms of medication used in polypharmacy and the impact it can have on some clients with an intellectual disability. Some of them can have a, a sedating or cognitive dulling effect. When somebody with an intellectual disability is already at a limited cognitive reserve, so already has very limited abilities to be able to reason and to remember and to apply things that may be learned in the context of psychotherapy or psychosocial interventions broadly, if there's a medication or multiple medications um, that cause that cognitive dulling or sedation, and it is much more difficult for that individual to to apply to, to retain and to, to learn from experiences in, in psychotherapy, other psychosocial interventions. And I've actually witnessed that when individuals have been taken off specific medications, their learning and their capacity to benefit from psychotherapy improves dramatically. So this is something that's a very careful consideration. Yeah, I believe I've seen that in I'm going to say, quote unquote, normative populations as well. I remember having sort of younger clients being on antipsychotics in particular, and then I had never met them not having been on an antipsychotic and then seeing them post being on one. It was like literally a different person with respect to their ability to onboard information, think flexibly, uh, be attuned to the, you know, to, to the conversation. So no, I can really appreciate that that's a big factor. So with respect to psychotherapy with a client who's been diagnosed with an intellectual disability, uh, what is the process typically of onboarding that client in terms of enculturating them to therapy, introducing the idea, framing up the benefits, framing up the risks, I guess sort of in informed consent in a sense. How do you typically navigate that piece? So I think one of the key pieces there for talking about informed consent and working through that process is again, identifying who is the decision maker. And so if the individual has a close support, like a family member having a discussion with the client themselves, of course, and saying, you know, who typically makes decisions when you go to the doctor is probably the way I put that. And with the family member there, they'll often be quite honest, I make the decisions or, you know, the client will say, no, I make the decisions, but sometimes with help. You know, of course, under Ontario law, it is 
it, we make the assumption that the client is their own decision maker until proven otherwise. And unless they have a capacity assessment um, that indicates that they are incapable of making those treatment decisions, then we, we give them the information and assess their ability to understand and appreciate that information to make an informed decision about engaging in our services. And so there is that piece involving an, a substitute decision maker or a power of attorney, if that's the case, um, really critical. And individuals with an intellectual disability, uh, with a mild intellectual disability rather, uh, it is often the case in my experience where those individuals have the capacity to consent to psychotherapy. They may not have capacity to consent to other forms of treatment, but certainly for psychotherapy, it's, it's a low, it's a low threshold in terms of the information that needs to be understood and appreciated. And so certainly um, most individuals will be capable of doing that. That's a key piece in, in providing informed consent. Uh, I have the benefit of being Dr. Phil to my clients. And so people will say, I have an easy one. You know, Dr. Phil on TV, what does he try to do? He tries to help people. That's a great in and we get a good <laughs> laugh out of it. And then <laughs> we move forward and, and I always get a joke about my hair or about other aspects of my physical appearance, not matching that of Dr. Phil's. So it's important to note, you know, that you as a psychologist or a psychotherapist to clarify with somebody who has an, um, an intellectual disability that you are not a doctor or practitioner who, who prescribes medication or works with needles. That is often a fear. If somebody's coming to meet with you, that that is what the expectation is. Um, and explain to them what it is that you do and, and how you go about doing it. And that it's a, a process of developing strategies and tips and tricks and ways of doing things or thinking about things differently than they are now to help them with the things that are bothering them. It's so critical that with any work with somebody with an intellectual disability, that the language be adjusted. How you say something to a typically developing client um, who probably knows all about psychotherapy because it's in movies and other places and probably have done reading of their own um, to be able to really adjust the language in a way that's very understandable for somebody um, who has more limited vocabulary and more limited verbal reasoning skills. So after doing that informed consent piece and really taking, sometimes informed consent for me will take half an hour or more to go through to fully, to help the person fully appreciate. I'm always of the opinion that informed consent should not be a one size fits all. Informed consent should be adapted to meet the needs of the person in front of you. And if the critical pieces are understood and appreciated, then to me that constitutes consent, informed consent if of course they provide it. The next piece that I would focus on is really developing an understanding of whether or not the individual has capacity to benefit from psychotherapy. One of the places I would look to initially for this as part of a chart review is the psychological assessment. If one has not been done already, I'd want to have one done and to see where the person is functioning. Do they have sufficient verbal reasoning skills? And again, putting them generally in the range of a mild intellectual disability within the context of this population. I have worked with clients who have a moderate intellectual disability and have benefited from psychotherapy as well. But again, it's, it can be more challenging and even more adaptation to the work we do. But a few things that are really important, I think, to consider um, and what I'll say is this is actually something that I really enjoy about my work with clients with an intellectual disability is that it forces you to go back to the basics. It forces you as a clinician to think about what are we actually doing here and what do we actually need? What does somebody need to be actually benefit from psychotherapy? And so a few things right off the bat, 
do they actually have sufficient language to communicate with you? Do they have vocabulary? Can you understand what they're saying? Can they understand what you're saying? It's a simple question. Um, do they have awareness of their emotional state? You know, uh, one thing that comes off quite often and um, is, is a bit of a challenge when working with individuals with intellectual disability is that emotions are lumped into good and bad. Well, we have to develop some more language and develop a better understanding of, you know, what different emotions are, but also the, that there can be an intensity, a variation in intensity of emotion. It's not that you're 100% angry or 0% angry. There's a variation there, right? Also being able to have memory abilities. It's very difficult to get work done in the context of psychotherapy if somebody is not able to link sessions together and build on what was done in the previous session. Uh, concept formation, being able to link uh, the way they, an individual feels based on what they do, right? Or how they think and linking that to how they feel. Again, we're talking about three-part model, five-part model kind of stuff. But even just being able to make those connections is important. And so this is all kind of what I do as almost a psychotherapy assessment process. Do they have the basic skills that are needed to be able to engage in psychotherapy and actually benefit from it? Phil, in your experience, is a family member often or to some extent integrated into therapy, maybe to help with homework or to assist with continuity in between sessions, facilitate things going on at home that are consistent with what you're talking about in the actual session? Absolutely, Pete. It's a great point. And we absolutely always recommend that the client have someone on the inside and somebody that can be there to support the client. Homework, as we know, for typically intelligent and typically developing folks is, is often a challenge at times. And so it's even more of a challenge for us. <laughs> and so, psychologists too. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and so it's always helpful to have somebody um, present as well uh, if the individual is open to that in session or at least at the end of session. So to clarify, um, sometimes clients will want a loved one or a support worker to be in all sessions and just be listening and, and, and engaging in the conversation. M more often, what I have found is that a client will want um, a support worker or a family member, the person that's going to be supporting them in psychotherapy, to come in at the end of the session. So um, I will do anywhere from 30-minute sessions, obviously, to, to the 60-minute sessions, 50-minute sessions. I'll do some combination there and have the support come in for the last five or 10 minutes. And we discuss, we'll just kind of hit the high points of what we discussed and ask them to support with the homework moving forward. But it's a really critical thing. Peter, I wonder if I could just jump in here and also add something that's a bigger concept here that involves supports and more systems work that really needs to be done in the context of intellectual disability. And we're shifting our focus to psychotherapy now, but maybe miss if I didn't mention this is I often talk with clients and their supports about onus of change. And what I mean by that is from my perspective, there's, there's two, two groups or two parties that essentially have responsibility for change in, in anybody's life really, but really more pronounced in folks with intellectual disability. Uh, the supports, the system, so that's other healthcare providers, family members, group home supports, day program, whoever else, and then the individual themselves. So a client with a mild intellectual disability does hold some responsibility themselves, so their onus um, for change in their lives. 
But there is certainly an onus on the environment, on the system, on the supports to also change how they they interact with the individual, how they support the individual to ensure positive change in the person's life. In my experience, there are a lot of times clients with a mild intellectual disability will be in situations or environments that are not conducive to mental well-being. And so there needs to be change that happens there if anything that's brought out of psychotherapy is going to have any lasting impact for the individual. Phil, perhaps flowing from that idea just a little bit, what are some of the perceptions that you have heard are out there or learned are out there that are common among clinicians in the community that might reflect a barrier to these clients accessing treatment or, cl- or clinicians even taking these referrals? And again, I think the competency piece is an important one to reflect on, uh, seek supervision when necessary, all that good stuff. What's the perception that's out there that you are working against if you're trying to get somebody into care within a community setting? So in, in speaking with clinicians in the community and psychotherapists and, and, and certainly encouraging individuals to engage in this work, the impression that I have is one of the biggest barriers is a perception that individuals with an intellectual disability cannot benefit from psychotherapy. And this is actually a narrative that has, uh, has, has gone around in, in, even in the literature and, and, and certainly uh, around uh, mental health care systems that individuals there's no point in doing psychotherapy because they can't remember enough, they can't learn enough, they can't apply enough. We contrast that with some literature demonstrating that there is most certainly benefit to individuals, individuals with an intellectual disability who engage in psychotherapy. Uh, there, there is evidence for it. There are some good preliminary studies that show that psychotherapy is a benefit to individuals with intellectual disability. Uh, different approaches certainly work, CBT being one of the most often studied, but, uh, but other approaches as well have been, have been beneficial. Um, and so I think there is perhaps a perception, A, that, that people cannot benefit from, uh, from psychotherapy, which is we're finding is not true. Um, the other piece is that uh, maybe a bit of a fear around how much adaptation is needed and moving outside of your comfort zone in terms of the protocols that you would typically apply or your approaches that you would typically apply. And I'm happy to speak on, on that point in terms of what adaptation looks like. Um, the other piece that I would say as well is that often individuals with intellectual disability, perhaps there's a, a, a concern about taking on additional risk with our clients. Phil, a question that came to my mind while we were just chatting a second ago is the notion of assessing safety and suicidality uh, in this population, given that there may be some challenges around maybe articulating one's inner experience or things of that nature. How, how does one go about doing a competent and effective assessment of safety or, or managing suicidality in this population? Thanks. Thanks for asking that question, because I think it's an important one to make. There's some misperceptions. Uh, one of two directions, I feel like probably multiple directions, but one, two that I can come to mind right now. Really, the first one is that individuals with intellectual disability are at lower risk of suicide, uh, suicidal uh, ideation and, and suicide, uh, suicidal behavior. Um, and, and this is uh, a belief that I believe comes from this notion or this belief that individuals with an intellectual disability don't have maybe the capacity to understand death and suicide. 
And it's interesting because there's a, a, quite a discussion in the literature on this. And what they have found is individuals, even with a severe intellectual disability, can understand the concept of death. And that so that is completely off the table as a protective factor, if we want to put it that way. Um, certainly, individuals with intellectual disability are at risk of, of suicide, as many of other clients are in, in, in mental health, regardless of their ability level. The other um, concern out there, I think, is the other direction, which is often individuals with intellectual disability with fewer psychological resources, fewer psychological functioning, maybe have poor emotion regulation. So it can actually feel like there's more risk because there's there's more outbursts, there's potentially more violence and aggression. So these are certainly factors to consider. But I think having conversations and better understanding and 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 speaking with the client and their supports about the context of those experiences, whether it's suicidal ideation or aggression, um, is, is really important. So I think what it comes down to is having a conversation with the client, with their supports, better understanding the context of their experiences of suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation or aggression and violence and, and working through that as we would really with anybody else, with any other typically developing person. Um, I think that the, the one piece here that I would encourage clinicians to do if they are exploring topics around suicidality with an individual with a mild intellectual disability is normalizing the experience of having thoughts about suicide. And what I mean by that is my experience, individuals with an intellectual disability feel that they are alone, that it is such a strange thought for them to have a thought of wanting to harm themselves or to kill themselves. And so making it very clear to them, I always ask up front, you know, do you think about suicide? Do you think about killing yourself? Paraphrasing, right? Because suicide is a big word. What does it actually mean? Let's change it. Do you have thoughts about killing yourself? If the answer immediately comes back, no, 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 no. I always follow by saying, so some people do have thoughts about killing themselves. And when people are really having difficulties with their mental health and they have mental illness, sometimes this is a thought that they have. Are you sure that that's not something that you've thought about before? And often I'll get a different response on that second pass. And so I think that's really important. Uh, a typically developing person might have the awareness that suicide is something that people think about. And so it's not as big a deal for them to, to disclose themselves. But for somebody with intellectual disability, they will feel that all of a sudden, especially after you've gone through the limits of confidentiality, that somehow that's going to help you know make them hospitalized and things like that. Phil, this next question I'm asking you really from the lens of your anecdotal experience, not so much as a clinician scientist. My own perception is that interventions might veer more towards behavioral interventions. I think, I think I've been laboring maybe under that perception or maybe even misperception for some reason, perhaps shortchanging the value of more cognitive or, or emotion-focused interventions. In your day-to-day -day experience as a clinician, like within the suite of CBT tools, what are, what's helpful? What are the go-tos that you find yourself reaching for? I think you're not alone, Pete, in, in, in feeling like, you know, being pulled towards more behavioral interventions. And one of the ones that I, you know, comes to uh, top of mind for me in terms of an approach that really works for a lot of people, and, and we know this is really helpful, is behavioral activation. Exactly. Right? Activity scheduling, getting in there, getting yourself going. And I'll make the point here that for many individuals with an intellectual disability who are unemployed, most often not by choice, but just because they literally cannot find employment um, and very little meaningful activity, they're sitting there staring at a wall or staring at a TV for most of the day every day. 
And if anybody was put in that situation, I feel like there would be mental health challenges that would, would come from that. And so behavioral activation is, is really, really important, something that I, I really encourage. A, a couple of different things. So when we're talking about CBT specifically, uh, individuals with intellectual disability are no different than any other individual. The human experience is the human experience. The way they interpret it, the way they view it may be a little bit different. And so we have to adapt and modify and help make more appropriate language and help really enforce connections between, say, behaviors and mood, for example, or thoughts and mood, thoughts and behaviors. So I think it's really important to understand that it's not about using a different approach. It's about using the same approach just in a way that's more modified and more accessible to the individual. Behavioral activation is, is, is a great one, and I'd go for that. Cognitive restructuring, let's talk about that one, because I think that's when we're talking about shifting away from behavioral approaches to more cognitive approaches. Behavioral, uh, cognitive um, restructuring is something that I will use probably with my more higher functioning clients with a mild intellectual disability, because it does require metacognition and that is a, a, a skill that is is very challenging for typically developing people to have let alone individuals with um, with an intellectual disability the approach that they take though is finding a couple of skills so let's say cognitive restructuring and really working at what is the what is the uh, let's come back here okay so when we're looking at cognitive restructuring as an example of a tool that we would use and as a skill that we would develop in our clients, uh, this is where, again, I find it very interesting as a clinician because you're stepping back and trying to find what actually is the thing about cognitive restructuring that, that results in change for the client. So sometimes... You know, we go to the, the, oh, the old standbys, the thought records, the, the, the things like that, and going through and working through that process. Uh, what I will say is I have not used a thought record in that format with any of uh, the clients that I work with who have an intellectual disability, because it's a lot of things on a lot of pages and a lot of directions, a lot of arrows, a lot of things. And, you know, it's, it gets a little confusing. But uh, one of the key pieces there is the evidence for that thought that's bothering you, the evidence against. And really, it's about the evidence that does not support that thought. And so putting a lot of weight into that and having a discussion, sure, writing it down on a piece of paper, but really making a connection, emphasizing that finding evidence that does not support that thought, casting doubt on whether or not that thought is actually true is the critical piece there and trying to get that more balanced perspective. And in doing that, then immediately reflecting. So, hey, we've talked about all these reasons why that thought of yours is, is probably, is, is not true. Yeah, there's some things that maybe suggest that it is true, but here's something that suggests not. Now, when we think about those things, how does that make you feel? Have you changed how you felt? And highlighting that, and then repeating, repeating, repeating. And so basically distilling, it's, it's not reductionist is what I would say in terms of an approach, but it's distilling down to the key pieces of psychotherapy that actually make change um, for a person's life. So 
the things that I'll add there as well is, um, so th- th- are there are other tools, uh, certainly things like behavioral experiments work, but again, a- a- adapting it, adapting it to um, the-, the context for a person with an intellectual disability. Um, many other uh, strategies, trauma processing works as well, but again, just doing it in a very, very gradual way. Another two key things are, first of all, normalization and psychoeducation. So normalization, I believe, is an underutilized uh, therapeutic tool that we have. Um, it is a, such a, a, a benefit to our clients to know that they're not alone and to know that the experiences they have, other people experience. I use the example of auditory hallucinations. You know, somebody comes in and they feel very, very distressed that they have auditory hallucinations. When I explain that the literature actually shows up to 16% of, of individuals that will experience auditory hallucinations, it's just they're blown away. And I'll put that in the context. 16%, 16% doesn't quite work, but I'll say if you're on a bus of 40 people and explaining it in that context, how many people do you think would raise your hand if I said who has voices? And I'd be the only one. No, you wouldn't be. You know, there'd be this many people uh, th- that, that also put up their hand. Uh, so normalization key, but psychoeducation as well. Um, individuals who are typically developing um, are often bombarded by pop psychology and, and other resources out there, good resources, not just the pop psychology isn't good resources, but information that helps them try to adjust how they navigate the world, how they think about the world, the things that they do, they, they learn things. Um, individuals with an intellectual disability are, are not going to be in those spheres as much. They're not going to be absorbing that information. Um, and so providing psychoeducation, providing some, some good understanding of how, how, our brains work, um, how, uh, for example, I'll just give a quick example here, dreams. So dreams, uh, there's some literature to suggest that about 50% of individuals with an intellectual disability across the spectrum of severity cannot differentiate between dreams and reality. Now, if you think about that, if the last dream that you had was actually something that you believed actually happened, how terrifying that might be. It might be really great, but it could also be really, really terrifying. <laughs> I was going to say, it could be amazing too, but yeah, I, I, take, I take your point. <laughs> right. And so being able to have a conversation about where dreams actually come from, right? And trying to apply as much as we know about that, that phenomenon as possible, and then making it as successful as possible for a client can do wonders for them when they are experiencing those things and not knowing how to handle them. So the point is being made normalization psychoeducation to basic clinical skills, but critical in the context of persons with an intellectual disability. So Phil, of course, this is a vulnerable population. In the course of working with a client, if you discovered that there's a risk of exploitation or abuse or neglect or, or some untoward consequence to the client that's serious, how do you as a clinician manage that? So Peter, this is, this is quite a challenge because as we, we talked about already that our, our individuals with an intellectual disability are, are very prone to, to potential um, abuse and exploitation. Uh, unfortunately, uh, under the limits of confidentiality, um, this does not warrant a duty to report in many cases. So unless the client themselves is wanting to disclose to law enforcement and, or to, to other, uh, other uh, uh, authorities, there is, there's very little recourse for you as a clinician. One, one area, I mean, certainly talking with the clients, talking with their supports and trying to come up and problem solve solutions to make sure that the individual is protected is always encouraged. Uh, 
one one caveat there there is no CAS uh, Children's Aid Society type of organization for individuals with an intellectual disability really unfortunately uh, but there is something called Report ON and if you were to Google that uh, it would bring you to a site uh, and to phone numbers and really where that uh, service is most appropriately used is, and well, it can only be used really in individuals who are being supported by a ministry funded uh, homes and agencies. And so if somebody's in a group home that is a developmental sector group home and is funded by the ministry, funded by the government, then that is a, a, a helpline that somebody can call and report potential abuse or neglect um, or exploitation, and then they can act on it. Unfortunately, and we've used that service before and we've, when we've had concerns with somebody, um, if the service is not ministry funded, the direction that they will give is to go and call 911 and involve the police. And then, of course, that opens up you up to liability as a, in a breach of confidentiality. So at the end of the day, you have to make a decision that you feel is in the best interest of your client. Uh, but unfortunately, a duty to report certainly for abuse and neglect outside of healthcare professionals, which of course is a, is a, is a duty report is not covered for this client population. Yeah. It puts the clinician in a very tough spot. Of course, the client is in the toughest spot of all, but uh, sort of bearing witness to that and maybe not necessarily being able to do anything directly about that must be very challenging. Absolutely. Phil, we've talked about a lot of challenging things today, but I want to end on a high note. What's the most rewarding aspect of working with this particular population? There are so many, Pete, and so I can't just give one. I'm going to give three real quick, though. First of all, it's the, it's the challenge and uh, of working with this client population. As I've said a couple of times here, you know, taking what we've learned in our graduate training and, and, and our clinical training and applying it in a way that's different. Than, than we've been trained to do. And using that creativity, it, it is an intellectually stimulating population to work with. Um, I think another piece is simply making a difference. This is a client population that otherwise would not be helped. Uh, individuals with an intellectual disability have the same rights to care as anybody else. And so being part of you know, the Royal and, and uh, dual diagnosis services there and being able to provide care to this client population that's so deserving and so in need is so rewarding. The last thing that I'll say is that unlike any other client population that I've worked with in my training or in my career so far, uh, I think that working with individuals with intellectual disability is a benefit to me as a clinician, as a human being to reorient me to the things that matter in life and having a unique perspective or a different perspective on challenges in the world, challenges in life, and working through those with clients is such a rewarding process and benefits me as a person as much as it does as a clinician. And I hope that it has that, that benefit, of course, to our clients. Thanks so much for that, Phil. And thanks so much generally for spending this time with me today. I've learned so much, really starting from a very low level of knowledge. I feel like you've done such an amazing job of rounding out the picture of what work is like with this population and what the possibilities are. So thank you so much for this today. I really appreciate it. Really, Pete, thank you uh, for the opportunity. Again, really just want to advocate for this kind of population. And I, I make myself widely available to anybody who would like to talk about expanding their practice uh, and their their area of practice to include individuals with intellectual disability is such a rewarding client group and um, really privileged to work with them. And, and thanks for having me, Pete. Thank you.
You are very welcome. I hope we get to talk again soon. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.